new member of the PowerCast, the gold standard of Paranormal Radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. This episode of the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. And now, on with the show. Let's go back in time, back to the 1960s, which is probably before most of my guests today were born, I think. Or maybe they were here and they didn't tell us, they were looking. And this was an all-night talkathon. Now, teenagers in those days would do what teenagers do today. You know, they get blasted. Except Alan Greenfield and I talked about flying saucers. And we decided, and maybe... You can do anything or believe anything at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning after you've been talking for about 16 hours straight. And we decided that we believed that UFOs couldn't possibly come from outer space. Why? Because they're never seen so much in space as on the Earth. They're seen in the sky. They land. They're seen over oceans. So Greenfield had this book in hand, The Incomplete Enchanter. And this was a book by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt, a fantasy book where somebody goes into an alternate universe where different laws of physics apply. And we say, well, what if UFOs were from an alternate universe? But then if you're going to look at that as a possibility, what if they were from the Earth right here, Mother Earth? They weren't from outer space. Then you think about people like Richard Shaver, who said that the Deros, the Tiros, creatures living below the surface of the Earth in caverns, were responsible for UFOs. And they use telegrays to generate hallucinations, to give us false images of what's going on. You think, what kind of hallucinations could they do? Well, if you go to Star Trek and you watch Star Trek Generations and Next Generation, all the series after the original, they had a holodeck. Where you go in there, it's a virtual reality world. You can see, you can touch, you can feel. And the only thing is, the things you see would be perfectly real that couldn't kill you because there was a built-in block in the computer. But then sometimes in some episodes, that built-in block was gone. And that takes us to the book that's going to be the discussion point here today. It's called The Crypto-Terrestrials by Mac Tilneys. And for those of you who don't remember Mac's appearances on the Paracast and the celebration of his life because he died at the tender age of 34 last year, I think we should have Paul tell us more about who Mac Tonys was and how he became interested in what he called the crypto-terrestrials. Paul? Well, Mac was a writer and thinker, frankly, from Kansas City, Missouri, and um, he had written on a number of subjects, paranormal and science fiction fiction subjects for uh, for a number of years um ufos being one of them certainly he he was had a long-standing interest in the ufo phenomenon and as he read a lot about ufos as he immersed himself in the ufo subculture and the sort of evidence the studies the writings he became more and more disenchanted with the extraterrestrial hypothesis not that he ruled it out, and, and we can talk about that. Within the crypto-terrestrials, he, he makes it very clear that he still thinks it's a perfectly valid hypothesis. But he started looking around and saying, well, look, are there other possibilities as to what the UFO phenomenon, assuming a, a non-human explanation, what it might represent? And he sort of 
hit upon this idea, the crypto terrestrials, back in about 2006, a combination, I think the first post on his blog, Post Human Blues, that he ever made about that used the term crypto terrestrials was uh, was in April of 2006, which was just a month before he and I traveled out to, uh, I first met him in person, uh, interviewed him in Kansas City, and then he and I traveled out to Los Angeles. We were doing some filming for Best Evidence, the film I did on UFOs. We actually stayed with Greg Bishop. We did an episode of Greg's show, Radio Mysterioso, um, a legendary episode, I think, that 12 people listened to, but many more have downloaded since in the, the actual recording studio or the radio station, rather, where Greg does a show in L.A., and that was sort of the first time, I think, that Mac had ever publicly talked about the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis that he was working on, and he had written about it for maybe a month beforehand, but it it had been something that had been brewing in his mind, uh, trying to combine John Keel's ultra-terrestrials with some of Valet's thinking with, frankly, you know, some of some of the stuff you were talking about, Shavers, won't call it Hollow Earth, but, you know, the sort of, the idea that there was an indigenous humanoid, if you will, living amongst us that might be responsible for this. And so that's kind of, he started off originally with crypto-hominid, which was the term that he first came up with, and then he decided that sounded a bit too much like Bigfoot. So he went for crypto. He went for crypto uh, crypto terrestrial, and he writes. I'm actually looking at his blog now. The post uh, you can look at it, folks. Uh, posthumanblues.blogspot.com, and if you go to April 16th, you'll see that he writes. I've been using the term ultra terrestrial to denote secretive humanoids living in our midst. Um, he notes that it's a term that Keel coined. And he says, while I'm intrigued by the implications of parallel worlds, whether Keel's superspectrum or something more in keeping with contemporary cosmological thought, my, meaning Max, ultra-terrestrials are local. While they might possess paranormal abilities, they live right here on our Earth. So, as he writes, so I'm respectfully disposing of the ultra-label and replacing it with crypto-terrestrial, which carries less Keelian baggage. And that's pretty much where he started. And over the last four years, he's been trying to, um, he was before his death, really trying to finish this book. And uh, and now it's out. I don't know. Is that, the, is that a good explanation? That's basically, that's it. Well, I'll tell you what, we have two other guests who can maybe amplify it. We have Greg Bishop and Nicholas Ray. Fern Greg, it's up to yeah. you. Where he came up with this, um, I first heard about it obviously when uh, he and Paul were out here uh, doing the show. Which, um, yeah, Paul's right; it's been downloaded quite a few times. And I think when the book's out now, more people will, will search it out and find it to find out what he was thinking about and where his process had evolved from that point up to when he finished or virtually finished the book in uh, October of last year. He, he and I talked about, and I'm sure, you know, Nick and Paul, too, um, a lot of people that knew him talk about these long phone conversations that they had with him. And um, he and I did the same thing. You know, we talked for two or three or four hours. And, you know, in the midst of talking about a whole bunch of other things, we did talk about some of the stuff he was putting in the book and those ideas and mulled them over. And he, we both got each other thinking about different things. And, you know, all of a sudden, after I talked to him, I'd see a post on on post-human blues about what we talked about the night before. And uh, a lot of those elements I saw uh, ended up in the book because it was stuff that was rolling around in his mind anyway. And I think in the process of talking to people who know what you're talking about, a lot of these ideas can crystallize and become more um, amenable to uh, something you want to put in a book and present to the public, which is what he did. How about Nick Redfern for more? Well, 
yeah, I mean, my approach is kind of pretty much identical to, to Paul and Greg's. I mean, I do have a few, you know, interesting recollections of when Mac first told me about his hypothesis, you know, the idea of, of the crypto-terrestrials. And one of the things that kind of struck me when he told me was that he was fascinated by the idea that Roswell could be explained in a crypto-terrestrial context. And I remember one of the, like Greg said about having these late-night conversations, I distinctly remember one of the things Mac told me. This probably would have been probably 2008, something like that. I truthfully forget now, but around about that time, where he felt that you know, if you, regardless of what you think happened at Roswell or didn't, Mac kind of viewed the recovery of this weird memory metal, but in the same context, the craft or object didn't seem that detailed, if you like. You know, it was just a large bunch of weird materials that, according to some witnesses, exhibited extraordinary properties, but there was no power plants, you know, there was no siege chairs, engine, etc., etc. And I remember speaking with Mac, and he said, well, you know, maybe this could have been really a secret spy balloon like the Air Force claimed, but not one of ours. And he kind of hypothesized that, you know, what if it really wasn't a balloon, but a truly advanced one, but built by someone else? And the Air Force, ironically, may have thought it was one of theirs until they stumbled across, you know, the crew members, I guess. And when Mac told me that, I explained to him that, well, a couple of years earlier, Fate magazine had actually published an article written by Walter Bosley under the pseudonym of EA Guest, which actually talked about how Bosley, who was in Air Force Intelligence and the FBI, his dad had told him that he had been briefed on Roswell and told, had been told it was some sort of terrestrial craft, but not our terrestrial craft, if you like. So, you know, we had a lot of these conversations and I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day. I do wonder if Mac had lived, if his book may have been more extensive because I actually sent him a copy of Walter's article, which he was very interested in. I do sometimes wonder if he might have filled the book out with some of the, some of the supportive testimony, not just his own hypothesis. Well, that's one thing, too, we should mention. The book is something like 120 pages plus an about message at the end about the author. So I kind of feel in reading it that this is the summary where he summarizes all the evidence, but maybe had he been around, he would have gone back and actually fleshed out out more case histories and more supporting data. What do you well, think, guys? The editor wanted him to do that. Patrick has told me that. He said, I wish he'd been around because I, when I got it, I was, I was um, surprised how short it was, and I wanted him to flash out some of these things, but unfortunately, he couldn't do that. Patrick actually took, I think, two or three months getting into a format that was uh, that he thought was presentable. So th th this was, you know, he had pretty much finished writing it, but it hadn't, hadn't gone through the, you know, back and forth with the editor process. Yeah, part of the problem with Mac is a very bright thinker and a very smart guy. And it's not that he was lazy. He wasn't lazy at all. His problem was focus. He had trouble sort of, I remember when he sort of first got the deal and was talking to his agent. We were out in L.A. It was 2006. And so four years um, to finish a book that was only finished because he passed away, unfortunately. That's really his contribution to that book is only 100 pages. Nick and Greg, uh, their forward and afterward, sort of fill out the other 20 pages. And so he had trouble sort of focusing in and he was an ideas guy and they were all running around his head and I guess the best way to explain the, the crypto terrestrial hypothesis is as a thought experiment that morphed its way into a, a hypothesis or a book but I think there's no question that if he had 
if he was still alive today, two things would have happened. One, he'd still be writing the book, and he probably would for another year or two or three. And two, yes, he would have moved on and, and discussed more cases. And when I was in Kansas City in 2006, I was talking to him about UFOs in particular for the film, but I took the opportunity to just ask him a few questions about did he think that certain specific UFO cases might have a crypto-terrestrial bent. And one of them was Rendlesham. And there's a video up on Google Video. If you go to the Paracast forums, I think it's there. I, I put these up in my review that I did of his book in my own blog, and I'm pretty sure they're at the Paracast forums, too. And he describes um, briefly how he thinks that a case like Rendlesham is a perfect example of sort of the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis at work, where... An indigenous species that shares the planet like us, and he, he would often point to nuclear bases and cases around nuclear bases. So he would look at the Rendlesham case and all of these nuclear cases, and he would say, does it make any sense that aliens from another planet far, far away, light years away, would be terribly concerned about whether or not we want, you know, blew our planet up, frankly? And unless you believe some of the more out there theories that somehow the Earth is the, the central crux of the galactic space-time continuum, and if we blow up Tokyo, uh, it's going to destroy the universe. Unless you believe that, there's there's really no reason why aliens would be terribly concerned, I, I think, about nuclear bases. And that's one of the things that he found troubling. And I think the nuclear thing is one of the things that really sort of got him thinking, well, does the extraterrestrial hypothesis make sense? And he, had, he makes it clear in his book, he had originally been, if I remember from when I first met him, the idea of artificial intelligence, that we were dealing with aliens from another world, but they were cybernetic, AI. And he said, that doesn't even make sense. What would make sense and what did make sense to him was if you were sharing the planet with us, you would have a vested interest in making sure that these people who have nuclear weapons don't blow themselves up, but also take you out with them. And I think it was that, which is why he talked about the Rendlesham case in particular, uh, I think it was that that sort of was a turning point for him in thinking, well, wait, maybe aliens from out there don't make sense. Maybe what makes more sense are aliens from here who have a vested interest in making sure that this planet is, is not destroyed by us. As you know, the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 60,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of the PowerCast, Audio is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One book to consider, for example, is Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up by Timothy Good. Timothy Good, as you know, has been a guest on the PowerCast for this this book or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi. 
Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking with co-host Paul Kimball, Nicholas Redfern, Greg Bishop. The topic on the table is the crypto terrestrials from the late Mac Tonys. We've all read the book, a fascinating book, fascinating thoughts. One of the things he was mentioning in the book, as I recall, is the suggestion that some of the images we see of UFOs, even possibly some of these abductions, they're really, and we go back to what I was saying at the beginning of the show, they're staged they might even be holographic images, projections, things like that. Guys, what do you think? I think it's Nick's turn. Nick, you're on the line for this one, so take it. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, regardless of what the origin is or the origins are of the overall UFO mystery, you know, there are, in my mind at least, a number of or a large number of cases that do seem to be staged. You know, this whole scenario of people driving down the road and happening to see the aliens taking, quote, soil samples. You know, lots of reports like that from the 50s. It's like, you know, Jesus, couldn't they find, couldn't they do it in secret where no one's going to see them? But, you know, it was like they they specifically went out of the way to be seen because I think it kind of reinforced the idea of alien scientists coming to Earth. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the crypto-terrestrial theory is wrong or right, but to me what it does suggest is that some sort of intelligence was trying to reinforce this idea of alien scientists taking soil samples, you know. And the Rendlesham case, for example, is, is another perfect example where some of the guys who were at the base actually spoke about how some of the senior sources, when these incidents happened, weren't focusing their attention on the UFOs. They're actually looking at the, the, the lower-ranking guys to see what their reaction to the incidents were, almost as if they really knew what it was and they were trying to gauge what everybody else thought of it. So, you know, and, and I think, you know, you could have a whole show on stage-managed UFO incidents to where it does look like somebody's equivalent of a Hollywood movie being projected for a specific reason. I know, you know, Greg has a lot of theories on this as well, but I mean, when that happens time and again, you have to wonder if, you know, it really is somebody's attempt to not just acclimatize us to the idea that aliens are here, but to actually hide another point of origin. You know, I, I understand that Max's hypothesis was just a hypothesis. But on the other hand, if you look at it in that context, it actually does make a lot of sense. Yeah, he had a quote in his book that I think sums it up nicely, and he, he wrote, For too long we've called them, quote, aliens, assuming that we represent our planet's best and brightest. Maybe that's exactly what they want us to think. So the idea that they're 
you know, we're the majority species. There's six billion or whatever of us, and, and they're a remnant from a past civilization. Very few of them left, as he put it, nomadic. Maybe their technology is more advanced than ours in certain ways, but, you know, sometimes numbers count. And so they would use these the, this idea of whether it's sort of holographs or whether it's using um, staged incidents, as Nick was talking about, to convince us that they're from other worlds, to distract, to deceive us, and to um, make us think that they were from someplace else so that we wouldn't be looking for them here. And I, in one of my rare host moments here, I'm going to ask Greg and then Nick, one of the things, I put a thread up on the Paracast discussion forums um, about questions that you might want us to talk about in this episode, and one of the things that came up was the idea of underwater UFOs, or USOs as they're called, I guess. And the fact that our planet is uh, over 70% water, we seem to know more about our immediate outer space area around our planet, our own solar system, than we do about much of what's under the Earth's oceans. What do you think of the idea, Greg, maybe, and then Nick, that these crypto-terrestrials, if you were, people often think they, they live in caves or whatever, but what about the fact that there, or the possibility there might be an underwater civilization in the depths of the ocean that we are not able to detect, or at least very few of us, maybe the government can detect, but the rest of us can't. Well, that's Great. an intriguing idea. There's a um, guy that freaked me out in the mid-90s who said he was from naval intelligence, and this idea has been running around in UFO circles for a while, that the Navy knows no more about UFOs than the Air Force does. And the reason nobody ever talks to them is because the Air Force is in charge of the air, not of the oceans, when the oceans cover 70% or more of the planet. It would be a really easy place for someone to, quote-unquote, hide themselves, especially from a civilization that's not really conversant with staying underwater for long periods of time or had even mapped a lot of the... Uh, the underwater, you know, in, in detail, uh, underwater topography. This guy from the Navy told us that the um, they had satellites which could see into all the oceans all the way to the bottom. I don't know if that's true. I haven't really been able to check up on it, but it w would lend credence to the fact that there's some kind of naval connection. Um, Richard Souter, in his Underground Bases and Tunnels book, um, does actually talk about um, underwater facilities and how those had been planned and maybe some of them had even been built, which would be even more hard to find and inaccessible built by humans than uh, the underground bases uh, on land. So, yeah, it's, it's and there's a very, very large body of literature dealing with UFOs coming out of and into um, the oceans and lakes, etc., well, of course, looking at things like this, we have to say, okay, the logical question people might ask, Greg, Nick, Paul, is if they're here, I mean, we explore the Earth all the time, how do they keep hidden from us? Who wants to grab that one, Nick? Yeah, well, well, my argument would be that if you look at the UFO mystery from an ET context, unless they have a really advanced way of getting from point A to point B in fantastic times that don't involve just straightforward linear travel, you know, from this star system to here, then they would have to have some sort of outpost base in simplistic terms somewhere pretty close to the Earth, if not on it. Now, if, you know, if you, if you take that logical approach, if there is an alien base on the Earth, arguably we haven't found that. So why should it be so difficult for crypto-terrestrials to hide themselves as well? You know, I think we have to look at it from the ET context as well, that, that if they're here, they have, they have to have some sort of stage post. So I think that's an important point to make. And I think also, you know, that there's this idea that if there's this advanced 
race of extraterrestrials living amongst us. You know, it's like Paul said, some of their technology may be more advanced, but they could be quite impoverished. What if the, the true irony is that, yes, they're far more advanced of us, but they are living in, you know, kind of a poverty-type scenario, nomadic, shuffling around the planet, planet under cover of darkness, you know, and just finding the best way to survive and hide out and, and kind of trying to convince us they have an, an absolute armada of craft when, you know, they may be down to, like, their last equivalence of 16 or 17 45-year-old Volkswagens or whatever. You know, it, it could be something like that. The reason we're not finding them is because they actually don't have a huge population and a huge resource of materials, you know, which would make it very easy for them to hide, actually. The interesting thing that Mac always pointed out, too, about the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis is it's testable. You know, you you can go out and you can look for signs of this, uh, or at least he thought you could, probably more easily than you can look for signs of aliens from other worlds coming here. So... He viewed it as a testable hypothesis. If you put some time and resources into it, you could actually go out and see if you could draw links from certain things that might show, yeah, maybe there is something here. We just haven't been looking for it. Um, certainly UFO researchers haven't been looking for it because as I remember as soon as Mac brought this, this idea out, everybody in the ETH camp, which is why the first chapter in Mac's book is basically loading up a shotgun, aiming it at the ETH camp within ufology and, and letting him have it with both barrels because they went after him, partly because I think they're, they're threatened by any alternative idea. Valet got it years ago and I think Mac got it and was going to continue to get it. They're threatened by anything that challenges the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I think for two reasons. One, it would show that maybe they've been barking up the wrong tree. While they've been looking out there, maybe they should have been looking down here. And maybe if they had been looking down here, they might have they might have found something by now. Because as Nick has pointed out in interviews um, that I've done with him, uh, it's been 60 years, and we're no closer to a, an extraterrestrial proof than we were 60 years ago. So I think that's one thing. And you know, the other thing is, I think they want to believe. And Mac and I talked about this a lot, this, this idea of belief. They want to believe, going straight back to the contactees, that they're, it's almost like they've transposed a belief in God because they don't generally seem to have that. But they want a superior being that comes from somewhere other than here that can provide us with some sort of moral guidance or eventually will save us. You get that a lot in the extraterrestrial camp, whether they say it overtly or whether you have to read between the lines. Whereas the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis has none of that. Frankly, you know, they wouldn't care at all about us. They care more about themselves and protecting their own place, whatever's left of their society. So, you know, looking for Klaatu to come here and say, we're part of the Galactic Federation. Get your act together or Gort will destroy you. Yes. Whereas the crypto terrestrials, there would be no question that they would be a competitive species with us. And we might seem to have the upper hand now. But, you know, Mac would would talk about ideas, well, maybe they're just biding their time. Who knows? But the one thing that I would throw out there, this kind of reminds me of something else that he would often say, and I'll throw this over to Greg. Greg? Human history. you got to catch this, Greg. You're on the other side of the country, so you have to kind of catch it. It's a long trip. I'll send it slow pitch. Um, <laughs> you know, this is a Jamie Moyer question. Uh, if there's any baseball fans out there, they get the reference. Yeah. Um, you know, human history, we can really, we can barely figure out what happened in the last hundred years, but recorded human history lasts maybe 2,000, 3,000 years where we have something approaching a semi-reliable record of at least a few things in our history, whereas the planet is billions of years old. So 
I would ask you, Greg, does it strike you odd that one of the primary criticisms that's often leveled against guys like Mac who come up with this indigenous humanoid theory is, well, if there were other creatures on the planet, surely we would have found evidence of it by now, and it should be obvious. Whereas if these creatures, their civilization vanished five or 10,000 years ago, uh, there's a show on A&E, all you have to do is watch it, you know, After Humans or something, and they, they basically say, well, if we all disappeared tomorrow, most of what our society, our civilization represented would be gone in 100 years, and in 1,000, you'd probably not know that we were ever here. So what do you think of that, Greg? What do you think of that general idea that whatever vestiges of their civilization might exist are lost in the sands of time? You know, it, it it makes a lot of sense that it would be lost, especially considering how long the Earth has been around and how long living things have been on it. Living things with brains have been here a far, far longer than you can uh, than than their whatever their technological uh, creations, however long it would take for them to break down. And the other thing is, you you've got this anthropocentric thinking that there would be buildings and cars and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. whereas why can you not posit some kind of group that lived in harmony completely with the environment which made it almost indistinguishable from the normal environment you know what i mean anything that they they built or that they they used might have been very small or or would break down very quickly so therefore the movie avatar was really about the crypto terrestrials yeah, well, some people said that, and then of course there's you know evidence of things under under the oceans, and then the crust, the, the you know the the Earth's crust has been moving around. So some of the stuff that's above the ocean is now under it. It's you know and and vice versa. So I think it'd be very hard to find any kind of evidence of such things unless you think about something like those uh, large um, spheres in in South America, which which don't seem to have any purpose for anything uh, at all, but they find them everywhere, from the size of a large building to the you know when you can hold in your hand, spheres of stone. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free. 30-day trial. This is a Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have co-host Paul Kimball with us with Nicholas Redfern, Greg Bishop. We're talking about the crypto-terrestrials by the late Mac Tonys. Kind of a totally new way, maybe not totally new, but certainly a unique and thought-provoking way of looking at the UFO mystery. Now, this logically, guys, and you can jump in wherever you want to go, takes us back to ancient astronauts. So, of course... In our early days, we came in touch with higher intelligences. We called them the gods. So was that evidence of their presence then communicating with us? Who wants to take that? Just 
say something. I'll say something on that. Mainly, you know, the, the idea that if you look back into you know, pretty much all cultures, ancient cultures around the world, you know, you find stories of higher entities, superior beings, quote, coming down from above, you know, trying to teach the natives how to live and relate in some sort of spiritual wisdom. You know, whether you take that in a religious context, a Christian context, you know, another religion, whether Buddhism, whatever, you know, the, the central theme is that there are higher beings who you know, trying to put us on the right track. Now, you know, some people will, and certainly do, millions of people place that in a definitively religious context. You know, it's God, Jesus, it's Buddha, whoever. However, you know, if you, again, if you look at it from Mac's perspective, if there was some sort of superior race that, like Greg said, an important point that, you know, we look at it from the perspective of having cars, skyscrapers, TV. Maybe they didn't rely on that sort of technology or that sort of society, and that's why there aren't many remnants of it left. But if they were on a downslide and wanted to survive, well, maybe when we were on the upswing, but in the very early stages, that would be the best time for them to come down and try and mould us, you know, the unruly little kids starting to grow up, mould us into something that could be kind of controlled or kept on a leash, which obviously hasn't happened. But my argument would be that would be the, the time to do it, not when we are some sort of superior force that could actually take them on, but equally when we're not savage cave people, but where we're somewhere in between, where we can be controlled, but equally we can understand the message as well. So arguably, it would be common sense for them to come two, three, four thousand years ago when we were, you know, starting to become civilized beings and, and would understand the message, but we wouldn't be able to raise a hostile force against them if we wanted to. There's this idea, too, that it's a civilization. Mac would often talk about it being a civilization in decline. Maybe they were hit by some natural disaster or a disease or whatever. Um, but there's also the possibility that he raises in his book that it's a civilization that simply evolved, that eventually they worked their way up into a form of higher consciousness. I just, Greg, I just want, and Nick, I just want to read something to you and to the Paracast listeners who might not have read the book from the Crypto Terrestrials, and it's a, it's a little long, but then get you to comment on it. Uh, Mac writes, given reports of humanoid beings materializing and disappearing, it's tempting to speculate that our visitors have mastered a technology of consciousness, able to manipulate their own wave functions and skip back and forth between multiple universes at the speed of thought. This is one explanation for the lack of physical evidence. They might lurk in hyperspace as well as familiar 3D space-time. Moreover, this form of travel might be accomplished without the need for energy-intensive machinery. If shamanic experiences are any indication, the ability to transcend space and time might be a more fitting subject for parapsychologists than theoretical physicists. Given that consciousness is likely a quantum function, deeply entangled with the rest of the cosmos, is it unreasonable to seek out traces of the alien among us? Maybe the signal SETI astronomers await will emanate from the depths of self, cunningly disguised as human. Greg, what do you think of that? Well, I agree with it completely. The thing, the thing about the book is that Mac, what he did was it's a 120-page thought experiment. A lot of people reading the book or even asking about, they say, well, did he believe this? Even, even Patrick asked me this on the last Paracast where we were talking about Mac. Did he believe what he wrote? He believed it while he was writing it, and 
he delved very far into this thought experiment and probably, this is what the best UFO and um, paranormal writing does, raised far more questions than, than provide answers. That's basically what I, I like about the book. Nick? That, that Paul just that Paul just read, you know, I think it's an important one because if we listen to those words, I think one of the things that a lot of people within ufology forget is they take a very simplistic approach. If aliens are out there, they're very much like us. You know, they have starship captains and they nuts and bolts craft, and but they're just a more advanced version of us. Which to me is the most simplistic, stupid, lazy approach to take. You know, if these things are alien then they're definitively alien. You know, that they're going to be so different to us. And you could apply that to the crypto-terrestrial theory. You know, the whole idea of alternative means of communication, contact, holograms, etc., I think is something to bear in mind, you know, when we're looking at what's going on and trying to determine what these entities are, where they're from, and what they want. You know, there's, it's like Mac pointed out, there's so many illogical things within the abduction scenario. You know, nobody, nobody ever in interrupts a, an abduction and gets caught, you know, the aliens get caught in the middle of it. Well, maybe it is some sort of brain-borne hologram. You know, maybe it's designed to perpetuate the idea of, of aliens kidnapping people to take their DNA, eggs and sperm. You know, perhaps a lot of it is simply camouflage and subterfuge. You know, we just don't know. But I think the important thing is that Mac was willing to look at these issues because he wasn't belief-driven. So many people in ufology support the ETH are so caught up in the belief system that they just, they cannot get their head around the idea that they might be wrong and just, just cannot even consider or think about it. Picking up on that point, Nick, and continuing with you, I want to read something else from the book because that sort of brings us back to the tenuous relationship that the four of us, uh, you, Greg, me, and Mac, often have with the it's a weird term, but the mainstream ufological community of ETH supporters. So I want to read you something from his book here. The ufological community, he writes, suffers from creative anemia. It has a disheartening tendency to refute dissenting voices, even those within its own ranks, with tired screeds that unnecessarily polarize the debate, such as it is, between cautious advocates of the extraterrestrial hypothesis and know-nothing science popularizers who seem genuinely incapable of considering the UFO inquiry out Outside the cognitive barriers posed by decades of cheesy sci-fi cinema and the legacy of myriad true believers. Having dotingly constructed a theoretical house of straw, many ufological proponents secretly prefer the tenuous camaraderie of their peers to the much more exciting prospect of being taken seriously by science. But the era of genuine hypotheses seems to be nearing an end. The, quote, old guard, inexplicably enamored of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, is now engaged in little more than ideological turf wars. The boons of speculation have been quietly set aside in favor of models that make just enough sense to allow their defenders to issue brittle proclamations with semi-straight faces. Meanwhile, the enigma persists, as always, seemingly just beyond our comprehension, and we have the nerve to wonder why. That's pretty stern stuff from young Mr. Tony's. But, <laughs> but Nick, you've been on the receiving end of it, perhaps even more than Greg and I, and, and maybe even Mac. What do you think of that? What do you think of the UFO community? What do you think the reaction is going to be when they read the crypto-terrestrials, the ETH proponents, mm. and what do you think of Mac's sort of 
there's no other word for it, attack on mainstream ufology, you know, with terms like creative anemia, which is which is pretty strong stuff that most people within the ETH camp probably won't understand. But you know, what do you think about that? Well, number one, I wish I'd written those words, you know, and that had a great way with words. You know, I would have said exactly the same thing. He would have probably put it more eloquently with me than me. I would have used probably a few more four-letter words or whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, joking aside, um, Mac is absolutely 100% spot on. And the reason why he was so on target is because... The, the search for the truth about extraterrestrials, excuse me, that was a bit of irony there. The truth about UFOs <laughs> has, become, has become so focused upon the ETH that what has happened is that it's it literally has become like a religion to where people have faith that the ETH is correct. They accept there's a genuine UFO phenomenon, but they don't need to look for what the origin is because they have faith that it's extraterrestrial. When faith takes the place of an inquiring mind, then, then everything's lost. You know, that, that doesn't mean the ETH is, is false. It may well be the case that some UFO encounters and sightings are due to the presence of real, literal, flesh and blood extraterrestrials. But when you base your belief system or conclusions on a theory for which there is no actual hard evidence, but you overwhelmingly support it no matter what, then the subject is in big trouble. It's the same way within cryptozoology. Somebody supports the idea, come hell or high water, that the Loch Ness monsters are a surviving colony of plesiosaurs. They may be, but people don't want to hear the far more down-to-earth and, to me, more plausible idea that they could be giant eels because it's not as exciting. And I think this is the problem that ufology has. Ufology has lost its ability to have an inquiring mind. It has a closed mind when it should have an open mind. And when belief systems and emotion come into a subject where we really don't know what's going on, it's done for. And unfortunately, that's what's happened with ufology, that it, it's like it's been hijacked by a theory that is being presented as a fact, and it isn't. You know, it's, this takes us back to the early days. One of the first books I read about UFOs was Flying Saucers from Outer Space, prejudging it right there from Major Donald Kehoe. And I think if you look online, you can get the book, you can download it, it's no longer under copyright. That is the entire ETH theory in one book written in the 1950s. And I think the thing that concerned me when I started talking with Alan Greenfield about these things, and certainly when you guys considered it and Max considered it, is the fact that the thought about what UFOs might be, it all stopped in the 1950s. We haven't gone anywhere, and that's really unfortunate. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f a t e m a g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits this is leslie kane and i'm with the coalition for freedom of information and you are listening to the paracast 
Our co-host is Paul Kimball. We have Greg Bishop, Nicholas Redfern. We're talking about a book called The Crypto Terrestrials, and it's published by Anomalous Books. It's available on Amazon, and if you click on the link at the Paracast.com website, you can place your order for a copy. I think they're discounting it for 10 bucks. And if you think about two cups of coffee at Starbucks or a copy of the Crypto Terrestrials, you know where I stand. Paul, you want to pick up? Yeah, I was just going to say the interesting thing about the extraterrestrial hypothesis is that in the 1950s, it would have seemed like cutting-edge science to people like Keogh. Whereas I think what's happened is, and as Nick said, Mac doesn't rule out the ex- or didn't rule out, sorry, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I certainly don't. I, I, we all just put the emphasis on a hypothesis, not on extraterrestrial, as opposed to what I call the extraterrestrial factors who view it as a fact. But Greg, maybe I'll throw this one to you. What do you think of the idea that maybe science has actually outrun the extraterrestrial hypothesis? that some of the things that people like Michio Kaku are talking about, the idea that Valet first came up with and Keel and those people of a super spectrum of ultra-terrestrials of parallel dimensions and universes, and the ETH people back in the 1960s and 70s were saying, well, that's crazy. I mean, we're talking, we need nuts and bolts spaceship, that spaceships, that's what we, science, can understand that. Do you think that maybe science is now saying, well, actually, that's kind of quaint, but, you know, there's there's far more esoteric things out there that seem to make more sense to us now. So maybe, you know, the the extraterrestrial hypothesis is a quaint little relic of our own perceptions in the 1950s that doesn't match the scientific advances that we've made today. Greg, take that one. (laughs) Well, I have complained in the past that uh, ufology, much of it is stuck in 19th century science, in high school science, and nobody's really read up on some of the newer theories about the physical universe, the possibilities of what we term, for convenience sake, other dimensions. Theoretically, if you look at superstring theory and other things related to it, there is the possibility that... And it's hard to explain. Every every possibility exists always and always has. And if you're able to navigate navigate that ocean, not to push any anything into the last thing we were talking about, but if you're able to navigate that ocean as a species, those different dimensions, if you want to call them that, it comes to the point where anything is possible, and you and people beings who haven't been able to uh, navigate that ocean um, look at you as uh, as almost as gods. And Mac does discuss this uh, a lot in the book, the fact that we may be tuned to one sort of uh, spectrum, I guess, our, our, our spectrum that we live and work and breathe and die in. But the UFO, the UFO knots, for want of a better term, might have been able sometime long ago to... Um, appear and disappear at different times and different situations and different possibilities at will, which would go towards explaining some of uh, the witness testimony. And if you stick to the ETH, that's the other thing about Mac's book. It doesn't, you know, he, he offers a lot of alternatives to people, a lot of alternatives to the it's it you know it's aliens from other planets oh it's not aliens from other planets oh it's it's crap there's there's a belief system going on both sides of that and like nick said when you get caught in a belief system even if you think it's backed up by science you're you're lost people that truly want to know what's going on and truly think that the mystery is at least partially understandable if not solvable 
have to start looking in other places, you know, whether it means they're going to you know, be invited to speak at UFO conferences or put on TV and all that is, is, is beside the point. And unfortunately for a lot of people in the UFO, I guess the luminaries, I guess, in the UFO arena, whether they know it or not, I think it, that becomes part of their motivation. Um, Mac even mentions it in the book. What, is, what do you say? While, while its luminaries might noisily claim otherwise, ufology collectively wants to be marginal. Um, they want to be marginal because they're at the top, they're at the big fish in the small pond. And if that pond disappears, they don't, they don't even have a pond to live in anymore. They can't so they give have lectures, they can't that. get paid to write books, it gets difficult. Let me throw out a totally left field question, because that's why I'm here, because I'm a lefty, by the way. So here's a left field question. Carl Jung writes the book about UFOs being part of our collective unconscious. So maybe there aren't external UFOs, but Mother Earth is communicating to us somehow through our collective unconscious. What do you think, guys? Uh, well, I actually think, as people, some people may know from some of my writings, you know, I get into some weird areas. And, I mean, this is one of the things I found, nothing to do with crypto-terrestrials, but, you know, originally coming from England, every summer I used to go down to Wiltshire, the one county more than any other in England, where, you know, the crop circles would appear every year. You know, there are all sorts of theories about crop circles, as there are with UFOs, but one of the more prevalent ones is the idea that there's some sort, that the Earth, you know, the, the whole Gaia theory of the Earth and the notion that crop circles are some sort of almost like a stigmata on the surface of the planet. You know, it's a wild theory. But, you know, when you're faced with that or aliens beaming, you know, some sort of sound waves down to the ground or guys with planks or witches and wizards, you know, doing occult rituals in the circles, which actually does go on. Any, th any theory is fair game. So, you know, I think all theories have their place and I think we should address all theories. But it's like Greg said reinforcing what I said earlier. When addressing a theory becomes reinforcing a belief system, you, you might as well just give up and go home and watch reality TV or something because when, you, when you're in that belief system mode, nothing else matters and nothing can be done. You know, nothing can be done to get you out of it. And that's one of the things that I find most interesting. And to you, go back to the religious metaphor, when, and I'll just pick Christianity as an example, although this generally works for every religion, the difference between sort of faith, which I think is rooted in a, a genuine desire to try and find out about the other, whatever the other is. So you, you have that in the early years of Christianity. All sorts of sex, all sorts of conversations going back and forth. I mean, early Christianity was basically one long-running thought experiment by people who were trying to evade being crucified by the Romans. And then eventually, as with every revolution, and Christianity was a revolution, it gets codified, it gets calcified, some would say, into a formal dogma that is designed primarily for social control. Here's the crazy thing that I always find amusing, is that there's a lot of people who write on the internet about the UFO phenomenon, and the one thing that seems to tick them off the most is the idea that there would be some central body that would police. You hear this a lot, oh, we can't have a central body that would police the ufology. Well, I have news for you, folks, you already have it. The advocates of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, they are the de facto cardinals of the ETH church, as far as I'm concerned. And so when we talk about religion, I wrote in my review of the book that Mac was a revolutionary, and I compared him to somebody that your listeners probably won't know about, but a guy named Henry Allen, who was a, an evangelist 
Archipelical in Nova Scotia, the Maritimes, in the late 18th century. And what Allen did, and it's worth considering for a second, what Allen did, he was faced with a very rigid, formalized congregational church that was very Calvinist in its outlook. And he said, look, I, I stress the personal experience with God. And he went around the colonies, and this leads into my next point, so it'll make sense. He went around the colonies, and they called him a new light, because all he said, none of these things that you've created, these, these things about baptism and stuff, none of that matters. All that matters is a personal experience with God. It was a revolutionary kind of thing. And then he died. He died very young, as Mac did. Within 20 years, his new light sort of philosophy had been turned into the Baptist church. You know, the, the mainstream religions had co-opted it, taken out all of the radical stuff, and just focused in on the things that they could use. And my question to you, Greg and Nick, after that long-winded, somewhat mm-hmm. relevant thing, is... Do you think that the same thing could happen to Mac's idea? Because I've already seen on the internet people talking about the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis and saying, well, of course, this is he's on it. This is absolutely it. This is the right answer. And I think Mac, if he was here, would be horrified that anybody would say that he had come up with the right answer. Greg? Of course he would be horrified. He, was, he, he said many times in the book that I'm playing with ideas here. This is a thought experiment. However, I did tell him over the years as we spoke and over the months leading up to the release of the book, and he would just not accept it. He was too um, modest. I said, you know what? I, what I think is going to happen with this book is that a few people will notice it. There will be some talk about it. It will cause a stir for a few months. And then in the months and the years and I suppose the decades after it, people coming into the field will read it and say, you know, why hasn't anybody said this before? This is incredible. Why don't more people know about this? And that, you know, that may start some sort of turnover in what people do when they get into the UFO field and what they concentrate on and what kind of questions they ask. Um, what Mac's doing with the book is is asking questions that haven't been asked before and offering some cautious, tenuous explanations, hoping that other people will, one, read it, and two, expand on his ideas. I, I think he was kind of he was kind of saying, hey, everybody, this stuff is around. Um, it's been around for a while, these ideas that he has. Why don't you take a look at it and run with it? Uh, and I think that's what the contribution of the book is. What's yeah, unfortunate which... I sometimes see in the UFO field is that we did discuss all alternative theories back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And then they die off. And then suddenly we're no longer talking about the alternative theories. You wake up one day and it's back to ETH and you think about the cycles here. And the unfortunate thing here is we have this great work here. We have someone who unfortunately is no longer around to expand it. And we hope that people like you will be able to expand these ideas and come up with more theories, more suggestions of what to investigate and how. But maybe 20 years from now, they'll just be reading Donald Kehoe all over again. And that will be the way and the truth. God, I hope not. I mean, that's. Uh, I, I'm hoping that that's not the case. If you look at the these, uh, what was the book? Thomas Kuhn's structure, structure of scientific revolutions. I think at the at the end of it, his conclusion was basically the people that are pushing the old theories that uh, don't want to let go of them have to have to essentially die off before new ideas can come. I'm hoping, in my most op- optimistic times, that that's what will happen with Max's book and other books that are similar to it that people generally ignore, like Greg. Little's books or or Jim Brandon's one book on the subject, um, the Rebirth of Pan, which which share a lot of themes, ideas, um, theories with Max. You know what's ironic about that is that Stan Friedman, in almost all of his lectures, uses that line to bolster the extraterrestrial hypothesis. <laughs> he says, 
He, he, it's actually in my film, Stan T. Friedman is Real. I have him saying it to somebody at a conference saying, you know, it was Max Planck. In order for scientific progress to take place, the people that held the old ideas kind of have to die off. And in, in a weird sense of irony, and believe me, I hope Stan lives another 50 years in a robot body or something. But They'll download idea, him. That's how it works. Yeah, exactly. Do a virtual reality, sort of in the cat skills, where his jokes will make sense. But, <laughs> um, you know, that idea that they have become the orthodoxy. And in a field, two things that strike me as always funny. One, it's the how can you have an orthodoxy where you don't know the answer? I mean, the UFO phenomenon is a mystery. It's weird. It's fun. You know what? Frankly, it's a little wacky sometimes, too. And I think it's a very reductionist approach that is very human of us to, I think the, ET, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, ironically, is the most human hypothesis of all of them, because it's not really about what the answer is. It's about what we want the answer is to be and, and what we can wrap our minds around. And that's it. That's what most people can wrap their minds around. Whereas you get a guy like Mac who's flying out there. He's going out in the edges. And, I, and Nick, I'm going to throw this one to you. I'm just going to read the last thing that he wrote in the book before he has one thing about our own future. But he writes this. If we're dealing with a truly alien intelligence, there's no promise that its thinking will be linear. Indeed, its inherent weirdness might serve as an appeal to an aspect of the psyche we've allowed to atrophy. It might be trying to rouse us from our stupor, in which case it's tempting to wonder if the supposed extraterrestrials are literally us in some arcane sense. Nick, comment. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this this obviously looks into a number of controversial areas, but the, the main thrust is that, you know, I think we well, might not necessarily see these entities for what they are and understand them because we put our own blinkered notions on them, as you've sort of just alluded to. You know, the idea that if aliens are coming here, you know, they have a hierarchy, they have a captain, they have a lieutenant, they have the radar guy, the guy who fires the missiles at the planet, that sort of thing, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, that's so simplistic and almost sort of in line with the contactee thinking of the 50s, you know, somebody meets Space Commander Zach, some planet, whatever. And I understand that for some people, you know, the simplistic approach works and they portray the phenomenon in a, ph in a way that they can understand and relate to. But if this phenomenon is so truly weird, we don't even understand it, but we don't possibly even recognize it when we see it for what it is, then we're in big trouble. And, you know, the, the whole idea that the phenomenon isn't what it seems, what I don't understand is why it's so threatening. Why is it people who, su who support the ETH are so threatened by the idea that there could be another theory? Equally fantastic, equally amazing if it was proven, but it just didn't mean that aliens from another world weren't visiting. I truly don't understand why that is a threat, other than the fact that it destroys their belief system. But why, why should that be a threat even so? You know, why can we not accept that something's going on? But hey, you know, it doesn't involve long-haired aliens from Venus or little black-eyed guys from, say, to Reticuli. You know, the idea that there could be an impoverished society, impoverished society hiding from us for 5,000 years, if that was proven, you know, hiding out in the jungles of South America or somewhere, you know, with their last 30 craft as they die from some sort of weird progeria-type illness or something, <laughs> you know, that would be amazing. And we would have solved the UFO mystery, and we should be congratulating ourselves. But you're going to have thousands of people sulking 
purely because he doesn't uphold the ETH. And, you know, it's sometimes like, is it worth it? You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think, you know, it's such a marginal. Mac writes about how ufology has, has collectively, mar- at least the ETH aspects of it, have collectively marginalized themselves. And he sort of posits that they've done it on purpose. And to me, it's kind of like, I rem- and Mac was a huge fan of REM. And he and I would talk about this. I remember REM when they were sort of this cool little college band that nobody knew about unless you happen to be in college and then they hit the mainstream they broke uh, i think it was the one i love and then it's the end of the world as we know it and suddenly everybody was listening to them the same thing happened with you too and the weird thing is a lot of their cool college fans said oh well they've a sold out and b uh, you know they were jealous that all of a sudden all these people kind of wanted to listen to REM and U2 because REM and U2 were their bands. And I sometimes wonder, and I think Mac hints at this in, in his book, that ufology, especially the extraterrestrial hypothesis people, are a lot like that too. You know, they think they're in on the secret, the pearl as the religious people would call it. And I think they're actually, there's an element of fear that if everybody starts to be interested in this to think about it to talk about it they're not going to be terribly relevant anymore they're big fish they'll have to give up their stuff they'll have to give up their field they'll have to go back to having a real life we'll have more of a real life on the other side of the powercast with guest host paul kimball nicholas redfern greg bishop we're talking about the crypto terrestrials so frank what do you think about ufos i saw one once I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast. The topic of discussion is a book by the late Mac Tonys, The Crypto Terrestrials, and by its title implicit that the UFO knots, whatever they are, they come from here, not from out there. But here may entail loads of possibilities. Co-host is Paul Kimball. We have Nicholas Redfern, Greg Bishop. They all knew Mac Tonys very well, understanding where he came from. Now, I'll give you the idea that keeps occurring to me when I read through this book, and Mac gets into it slightly. Richard Shaver. Richard Shaver, working as a welder, starts writing these stories which he sends to Ray Palmer, editor of Amazing Stories magazine, saying that he somehow is in touch with those beings down there, the Deros, the Tiros. And there were a couple of things about what Palmer and Shaver said, and I knew them both, by the way. Okay, I'm not boasting, I just happen to know them. You know, I've been around forever, and I wrote the very first song. Maybe that's part of it. But they were saying, before there were flying saucers, or we use the term flying saucers, Ray Palmer was writing about them in the Shaver stories that he edited and rewrote. And then Palmer said, flying saucers are here to make us think. So guys, what are flying saucers here to make us think about? Who wants to pick up on that? 
I'll do it first. Yeah, I've played with this idea for a long time. Um, I think that the UFO phenomenon is, it seems always tantalizingly just ahead of what we can think of or what we can believe. So we put everything that we think on it and not, none of it fits perfectly. So other people uh, have said that um, what it's doing basically is showing us something that doesn't make any sense as you know as we apply our our ideas of science and reality and kind of trying to pull us into the future you know maybe it's us in some way trying to get ourselves to evolve and that 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 idea is i'm i'm sure gene knows that idea has been around for quite a uh, quite a while uh, i even heard bud hopkins say that uh, you uh, the ufo phenomenon is is pulling us kicking and screaming into the next era of of science although i don't know if he applies that but uh, yeah, it's 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 there. It's undeniable, and you know, and to deny it, as some people do, and say that it's all hallucinations or whatever, is is intellectually dishonest. Um, you know, the uh, crypto terrestrials is trying to be absolutely honest in the way that Mac looked at the problem and and the suggestions he's making. And he gets into stuff that doesn't. Most people wouldn't look at and say that's obviously related to the UFO phenomenon. Uh, for instance, he writes, um, this will be a shorter quote, don't worry. He writes, given the vast number of reported out-of-body and near-death experiences, not two things that you often hear talked about at your average UFO conference. He didn't write that part, I did. Um, he writes, I find it difficult to reject the, po- the prospect of non-local consciousness. Perhaps a sufficiently advanced technology can manipulate the quote-quote soul as easily as we splice genes or mix chemicals and test tubes. If so, encounters with extraterrestrials may help provide a working knowledge of how to modify and transfer consciousness. Abilities that seem remote to the current terrestrial state of the art, but may prove invaluable in a future where telepresence and virtual reality are integral to communication. And then he writes, already the capabilities of brain-machine interfaces are tantalizingly like the popular perception of telepathy, often thought of in strictly paranormal or even magical terms. Now, Greg, you've read a lot of Dean Radin's work and you've interviewed Radin, as I recall. Is there some sort of linkage, perhaps, between something like what Max writing about there and getting into things like telepathy and the work of guys like Radin in parapsychology who have delved into that? Is there some sort of possibility that Mac might have been on to, dare I say it, a unified field theory of the paranormal? Just wondering. Well, I think he's on to it because he lets his mind go into areas that other people are, or he did, other people are kind of scared to go. Yeah, and there there are definite linkages because throughout uh, Raiden's research, I interviewed him in the mid '90s. He's done a lot more since then. Right. Um, if people don't know, Dean Raiden is a uh, parapsychologist who's been doing um, scientific experiments on mind over matter for probably 20 years. What came out of that interview I had with him and what's relevant to this discussion is he took basically what should have taken a two-hour interview. I interviewed him for five hours. And what I realized at the end of the interview is he was trying to get me to, to get my mind around the concept that basically, to put it in a few words, time is an illusion, and causality does not necessarily flow in the way we think it is from, you know, from cause to effect, that sometimes the effect comes first. And he had found that in some of his experiments. And if you get, it sounds to me like somebody, you know, a child just barely able to use a tool, figuring out what might have the implications of what we see in the UFO phenomena, witness, witness testimony about um, things disappearing, reappearing, and precognition 
prediction of something that might happen. And that's a hugely ignored part of the, the UFO phenomenon is is the effect on the witness. You know, nobody ever asks how does that make how did that make you feel or follows up with them what happened to you later things like that 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 show that we're intimately connected um, individually with this phenomenon and the reactions to it are almost as individual as as people are. And Mac does discuss this in the book as well. He, he does give voice to the uh, idea that we're probably as responsible for what we think about the UFO uh, uh, phenomenon as the phenomenon is itself, if you know what I'm saying. We, have, we are very complicit in, in the creation of that idea or that reality. Nick, what do you think of all that? Well, yeah, I mean, go back and to go back to your, you know, the, the original kind of thrust as to, you know, where uh, Greg said the phenomenon seems to be one step ahead of us all the time and trying to teach us something. I would actually agree with that, but I think it's more of an either-or. It's either that or it's a phenomenon that is trying to deceive us into believing, you know, it's extraterrestrial or it's whatever. I think there is good evidence that people, you know, who have profound UFO encounters are radically transformed in, in, a, in a way that eerily and chillingly parallels deep religious experiences, you know, where somebody is quite literally sent on a path that alters their lives. But of course, the big question is, what's the motivation behind this? UFOs may be able, may be trying to alter our way of thinking or, you know, teach us, etc. But what's the motivation? Is it for our benefit or is it for their benefit? And I think these are all, you know, important issues. I think, I think Greg makes an extremely valid point that I 100% agree with, that the phenomenon deliberately stays one step ahead of us to ensure that we continue to look into it. But, you know, are we being kind of like, you know, the, the fish chasing the bait on the end of the fishing rod, you know, or is it somebody really trying to help us? I don't know. I don't think we should race to conclusions one way or the other. And I think that's, that's what Mac did. I mean, one thing I did want to mention, this is slightly going off track, but, you know, the, one of the things a lot of people forget or haven't noticed is the subtitle of Mac's book, which is A Meditation on Indigenous Humanoids and the Aliens Amongst Us. You know, the first, the most important thing are the first two words, a meditation. You know, it's a theory. You know, all these people are shouting and screaming that, well, this just couldn't be. They, they've missed the point of what Mac was doing. You know, he's asking questions instead of, you know, with their lofty approach of already having the answers. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's in my review of this book. That's why I called him a revolutionary. Uh, and I really, you know what, I really think, and people, one or two people didn't criticize me, but they just pointed out, look, he was one of your best friends. Of course, you'd write something nice like that about him. And as I pointed out to them, well, Nick's one of my best friends, too. But <laughs> as Nick would recall, my review of Body Snatchers in the Desert was, you know, less than kind in some respects. So I don't no, think but, any of I, don't, I was just going to say, I don't think any of us have any problem if, if we had read the crypto terrestrials and said, well, this is not Sir Max out mm -hmm. to lunch. Um, we would have said so. When I look at it and I say, look, this guy was having, not that his idea about the crypto terrestrials was revolutionary, although I think that is within the context of the UFO field, but I also, I just think his way of thinking was revolutionary because he thinks or he thought. And so many people that look into the UFO enigma, strangely enough, don't seem to want to think. They just want to be fed an answer. And that is worrisome to me 
as somebody who takes the UFO phenomenon seriously, sees it as, as a mystery that's worth looking into, that so many people who are seem to be concerned about it don't view it as a mystery. They, they just view it as something received from heaven, as it were, or the gospel. And Mac, that's why I call him a revolutionary, because he was definitely, as you guys do, I mean, honestly, Nick, whether you agree with body snatchers in the desert or not, Roswell is the orthodoxy of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So, you know, things like that, you should poke holes in them, test them, because none well, of them are proved. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to hijack this thread, you know, to talk about body snatchers, but I, I do... You know, if you need to, go ahead. I'm not going to stop <laughs> no. you. You know, later on, of course, you'll pay the penalty, but you know how it goes. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, I, I don't think cases, strong cases, need to be knocked down for the sake of it. What I do think, when a case has been built up, on faith, you know, and, and tr you know, if anybody goes out to the crash site today, they're not going out to do an investigation. That's a trip to Mecca. Mm. It is. You know, and, that, and that's the problem. You know, I don't knock significant cases because they're easy to knock down or hard to knock down. If there's another argument or another idea, we should look into it, you know. I can almost see the day when UFO conferences are just held on a Sunday morning, you know, and then the organizer goes around with a plate collecting money at the end. You do it at well, the beginning to reserve your space in the convention. Well, that shows how much I know about churches, you know. But, I, I yeah. mean, you know, I can, joking aside, I can almost see that happening. Paul made one of the most important points of the night there, that, you know, for many people, the subject, there's no mystery. It's a given as to what's going on. In the same way, it's a given that when you die, if you've been good, you're going to go to heaven. If you've been bad, you're going to go to hell and be prodded by this guy with, you know, a pitchfork and horns for the for all eternity. It's a theory, you know, in the same way that other religions hold to reincarnation. But ufology, for some weird reason, just cannot get its head, mainstream ufology just cannot get its head out of the ETH, which might be right, but you can't advocate it loudly without evidence. You can only offer it as a suggestion, and nobody is offering it as a suggestion. It's a conclusion. Yeah, it's weird. You know, Mac would, I, I kind of view Mac as the guy who would walk into a, a Christian prayer meeting, for instance, and he'd say, well, you know what? We might be onto something here, guys, but I was just talking to this Buddhist, and he had some really interesting things to say, too. We should have a chat with him. And, he wouldn't and, finish that sentence. Yeah, no. And, and the ETH he would be people, beaten and battered and, you know, well, thrown out. But there is an element, of, and a very vibrant element within Christian thought that accepts stuff like that. They're wide ranging, and they they embrace other faiths and every you know, and, and all faiths. There's an element within all faith that looks at other faiths and says, "Can we learn from these other faiths?" And then there are elements, whether it's Islam or Christianity, in all faiths that say, "No, ours is the only way to heaven." And you know, to stretch the religious metaphor to its ultimate conclusion, I guess, ufology is like that, and. I think we all agree we're, we're singing from the same hymn book here. The ETH is that it's the only way to get in. And Mac, the nice thing about the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, he's, he's basically saying, well, you know what, that possibly, but there's these Buddhists over here, i.e. the crypto-terrestrials, they've got some interesting things, so let's look at all of it. I, I, I don't know about you two guys, but I can't imagine any other way of looking at it than the way he was looking at it. And so if the crypto-terrestrials, which I recommend everybody reads and buys, if it is a, uh, if Mac's final contribution was to take a cattle prod and stick it where the sun doesn't shine in ufology and then hit the electrify switch, then I think I think he would be happy with that, and I think that's the most important contribution he could have made, regardless of whether there's crypto-terrestrials or not. He woke us all up. He gets us talking again.
neighbors, would you like to see the PowerCast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the PowerCast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? This is Cattle Prod Radio. Mm-hmm. Co-host Paul Kimball featuring Nicholas Redfern, Greg Bishop. The topic of discussion is Mac Tony's thought experiment, the crypto terrestrials. And if you go to theparacast.com and click on the title of the book, it takes you right to Amazon Books. I think they had it now for $10 a copy. Discounted. So please give up the two coffees at <laughs> Starbucks. Get yourself a copy. Sit down. Read the book. It'll take you two or three hours. And start a thinking about what's going on. We are down to 45 minutes and maybe have about six hours to go before we yes. continue. What about UFO abductions? Now, there's so many going on. Is it something that they're staging? Are people picking up on some kind of frequency and just getting these messages? What? Greg? Greg? <laughs> uh, poor Greg, you're going to get it. If you want time to think. Uh, Whenever the tough questions come up, we all, Nick and I always defer to Greg while we hey. sort of think. Yeah, so that I can say something, then you can riff on it. Um, exactly. Well, in Matt's book, he actually evinces the same thing that I generally think about abductions, that number one, and that's a big one, and it overshadows all the other things that uh, he says and I would say, we don't actually know what's going on. We don't know that it's aliens from other planets or whatever. We don't even know if they're physically real in the way that we think physically real is. Because we have no real evidence. We don't have videotape of it happening. We don't have pictures of it, at least any any that anyone would accept in a wide, you know, in, a, in wide release, I suppose. But there is definitely something going on. And there are definitely people that are having strange experiences. And a lot of them match up with each other. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we don't know everything we know. I mean, every, we don't know everything. <laughs> Maybe we don't know everything we know either. <laughs> um, we don't know everything about the way the human mind works and the way it interfaces with whatever, with, that, with the reality that it lives in and the ones we're not aware of. The, the quote I keep coming back to was told to me by um, Mario Pozzaglini, who was a clinical psychologist who had a heavy interest in the UFO subject. Um, he died in 1998, I believe. But I knew him for about four years. Um, and the quote that I always come back to from him was about uh, abduction researchers. And he knew of where he spoke since his professional background. He said that um, they have little understanding or respect for the subconscious. And I think uh, that's kind of the um, linchpin on what's going on with abduction research is that they're accepting what people tell them as a reality that any of us could experience given the right circumstances, and I don't agree with that. And neither did Mac, and he went into it extensively in the book. One of the things about the, and I have a sort of very critical view of the 
quote, quote, alien abduction, end quote, researchers like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and their methodology. But I don't dismiss, and I think most alien abduction or, say, let's say abduction cases can be explained without resort to the paranormal. But they're like the UFO phenomenon. There is a residue of cases. I think they are the more weird ones, the more anomalous ones that don't fit sort of the rigid pattern that somebody like David Jacobs would find in every case. The the interesting alien abduction cases are the ones that seem to be, to me, much more personal and different. And I would say that it's possible, and Mac might have been on, I know Mac and I talked about this uh, on several occasions, that you have UFO abduction researchers who are looking at the abduction phenomenon, or enigma, as Kevin Randall would call it, from a purely physical point of view. The aliens come down, they walk through your walls somehow, they take you out of your bed, up to the spaceship, they prod you, they put you back in your bed, you, that's it. It literally happens. Whereas what if what's happening is all happening within your mind? It doesn't mean you're creating it, it Doesn't I'm not saying you're crazy, but what if it's happening, happening at a different level of consciousness, almost like an out-of-body experience or something like that? And it could be crypto-terrestrials or aliens or some other intelligence that's non-human contacting us, dealing with us in the only way maybe that we can rationalize within our own subconscious. But it's not actually physically happening. It's happening in our mind while we're asleep. And there's so much about our brain that we don't understand how it works. That idea, to me, seems attractive. And it also helps explain, I think, some of the similarities between the alien abduction um, mythos stories and the fact that these kinds of encounters have been going on for all of recorded human history. It's just a different, you know, it used to be succubi or old hags, and now it's aliens. So maybe they're contacting us through our subconscious in ways that we can understand in our own particular time period. Nick, what do you think of that idea? I actually agree with what a lot of what you just said, Paul, pretty much for the most part. You know, I mean, I've, I've looked quite extensively into the abduction phenomenon, and, you know, there's the several important things to be aware of. You know, you touched on one at the very end, the fact that, you know, abductions in the literal present-day scenario, okay, they've only been reported for about 50, 60 years or whatever, or people have been hypnotized, have said, you know, back in the 30s or 40s when they were little kids, they were abducted. But, you know, abductions as such don't go back much before that. But encounters and abductions undertaken by mysterious creatures, bizarre entities, go back to the dawn of time. You know, you can go back to ancient Babylon where they had legends and tales of demonic entities that had, had an obsessive interest in human reproduction and babies, you know. What's the difference between that and today's greys? In the 1500s and 1600s in Britain, you know, I can tell you coming from Britain, there's a huge body of literature about fairy encounters where a guy would, you know, go off into the woods and he'd lose track of time. He'd be taken to the fairy kingdom where he has to mate with the fairy queen. He comes back to reality. He thinks three days has gone by and 45 minutes has gone by. People who deny there's not a parallel here are actually denying part of the phenomenon. There is a parallel. It's just that the UFO motif, it's the present day motif. And there's also the illogical aspects that Mac talked about in his book, you know, the idea that extraterrestrials from a star system X number of light years away would be so compatible with us that our genetic makeup would allow them to save their race by just scooping a few eggs and sperm here and there. You know, that's, that's just so simplistic. And I think for me, one of the most laughable things is the whole star map 
Betty in Barney Hill angle. Mm. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, can you imagine Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins going to the moon with a fold-out map? <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like the the idea of the, the aliens that the Hills met. I actually do believe the Hills had a genuinely anomalous experience. I really do believe that. But if they were shown a star map, and they may well have been, to me, that would be more in thinking and in line. Instead of being abducted by aliens, that would be in line with trying to convince them that's what was going on. Well, here's our alien map, so we're obviously aliens. You know, that would be more in line with the crypto-terrestrial theory of subterfuge and camouflage. But for me, the idea of having something so simplistic as a map, when space, you know, we're moving through space right now at X number of thousands of miles an hour, and to get from one planet to another, you don't travel from point A to point B. You know, you, you figure out where point B is going to be when you get there. To me, in the abduction scenario, that map was not created to allow the so-called aliens to traverse the universe. That map was created as a stage prop for the hills. Well, there's yeah. another question here, too, that I think is implicit in what's been said so far. Are these abductions individual experiences, or are people just tapping into something that goes on anyway, like turning on your TV set and seeing Channel 304? Well, it's interesting. There's... Um Let's throw that to Greg, but I just want to read something from the Paracast forums. There's a, a user at the Paracast forums known as Trained Observer, and in one of the crypto-terrestrial threads, he writes, um, CTs make as much sense as ETs or trans-dimensional beings. We could be as blind, deaf, and dumb to a, C a CT civilization society as a goldfish or an ant to a human society. Something appears to come and go as it pleases, leaving us only with a partial and probably unintentional awareness of their presence in the form of the UFO and paranormal normal phenomenon. What do you think of that, Greg? What do you think of the idea that maybe it's unintentional, that they're not trying to interact with us uh, so much as, and you pick up on Gene's point too, but also this point that the trained observer raised, that it could be unintentional, that whatever's on this planet is so far evolved above us, as Michio Kaku would say, we, we could be listening in on a conversation but not have any clue as to what it might be. That could be true, but it doesn't explain you know, the seeming intent behind wanting to contact us. And, I, and Mac and I, and I'm sure Nick and Paul, and maybe Gene, we're fairly convinced that there's something that's not human, that has, has some sort of consciousness that interacts with us occasionally. So I, I wouldn't say that, the, that we're just looking in on something and putting our own, uh, our own spin on it. I think that's a great part of it, but I think there's a need, seems to be, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't believe anything. I just have heavier beliefs and not so heavy beliefs. But it seems to be that there's something there that's that wants some sort of contact with us and is connected on a kind of an intimate level through our subconscious and and um, has been going, as Paul said, and a lot of people have said, has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, as long as there's been recorded history. What, what was your question, Gene? Was, oh, was the... Um, is, is, are we just tuning into something uh, with abductions, or, or is it individual? Right. Uh, exactly. I don't think it's an and-or question. I think it, if you look at the literature and talk to people, which I have, I think there's elements of both. There, there is something going on. There is a separate consciousness and reality is, I'll put in quotes, separate, separate consciousness and reality from us. And occasionally we will interact with it, and the reactions to it, like I said, are as individual as people are. But yes, I, I believe that there is something there. Now, now, past that, I don't have an explanation for it. But I, you know, we all we've all 
heard of, seen, and read about the manifestations of it. This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We're doing a thought experiment on the Paracast this week in honor of the late Mac Tonys and his final work, The Crypto Terrestrials. Our co-host is Paul Kimball. We have Nicholas Redfern and Greg Bishop. And, of course, another question that hits me, if these are physical, real beings of whatever level of achievement and they see we're doing really bad things, why not get in touch with our governments on a more direct level and say, hey, guys, we got to work together. We're in this together. Or maybe they don't think they'd listen. Well, if you look at the way the leadership has gone on this planet for the entire recorded history, I think it would be a bad choice to get in touch with the leaders. Or their followers, frankly. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it brings up that Whitley Strieber idea that he, he thinks that um, whatever it is is trying to affect people on an individual basis from the bottom up, which which makes sense. I mean, as a thought experiment, that makes a lot more sense than, than taking me to your leader, so to speak. So it's not trickle-down theory. We don't use trickle-down economics in the UFO field. No, trickle up. <laughs> <laughs> you're, the, you're the anti-Ronald Reagan, yes. It's I don't know. It's, it's, it's just weird, like... Unless they are exactly the same as us, why would they want to talk to our leaders? That would be like, frankly, us going to, I'm not going to use the ant example again, but I don't know. Say you got 20 dogs running down the street and you look at them and you go, hmm, well, let's talk to the leader dog. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, one dog is the same as the next. So if they're, if we are dealing with an intelligence that's more advanced than us, I don't think they would particularly care that Barack Obama happens to be the president of the United States to them, to it, to whatever. He's just one of six and a half billion of us, especially if you view it as as they've been here for hundreds or thousands of years. I mean, we come, we go. Um, if this is something that's been with us throughout our recorded history and perhaps even longer, you know, we're a drop in the bucket. And even using the extraterrestrial hypothesis, if it takes them, you know, from the nearest star system, even traveling at near the speed of light, it would take them four or five years to get here, I think. And there's no planets around them either. Yeah, I know. Paul's science bad, but let's say it takes (laughs) many many years to get here, even at They just use warp seven. Engage. Well, or maybe they're using wormholes or whatever. I don't know. But let's assume it might take them a while to get here. Are they really going to care too much about talking to any one particular human being? No, we'd all be the same. You know, they're far in advance of us. So in the same way that it's it's kind of a historical thing. I'm sorry. Now I'm thought experimenting. But I remember when I was doing my uh, graduate work in history, there was a school of thought. Because in the old days, people studying history would look at leaders, 
there you go. They would say, we need to learn about the kings and the queens and the lords and the presidents and stuff. And then there was this movement in sort of the middle to late 20th century that said, well, you know what? Uh, are those people any, really any more important than all of the people that were underneath them? We also need to look at the shopkeepers and the farmers and the ditch diggers. And I think in the history field, they went too far and they said, well, we're not even going to look at the kings anymore. But there's a happy middle ground where, you know, you have to take into account everybody. And so this idea, you know, the take me to your leader thing, I think is manifestly absurd. And so the idea that the American government is hoarding all these secrets because aliens landed at Holloman Air Force Base or whatever and said hello, I think is equally absurd. There you go. That's just my take on it for what it's worth. Yeah, I, I kind of that. agree with that. I think, you know, the when we kind of consider the notion that aliens would come here and speak to our leaders, so to speak, we consider that purely because we use our mindset to try and understand how they would act instead of realizing that they're truly alien. You know, Paul's quite right. We're all just six, million, six billion people. Nobody from out there, if they're truly advanced, is going to care. We only think of it because that's, our, that's the way our minds work. Well, this is the president, that's the prime minister, that's the king, that's the queen. They're obviously going to come down and meet them. Well, well why? Because that's how we think. And, I, and the problem is, ufology is caught up in that mindset of having rigid ideas and belief systems throughout ufology. You know, the aliens crashed in 47. They're abducting people because they're races on the uh, biological downside you know there's dead aliens and crashed ufos at area 51 flying triangles and back engineered ufos etc etc it goes on and they're not theories anymore and ufology you know uses this same approach of using the logical way our brains work to try and fit all this into a scenario and and, and that's all it is you know in the take me to your leader idea it's a scenario but it's, it's our scenario because it's the best we can come up with. I wouldn't even say it's the logical way. Our, I agree with you, but I wouldn't even say it's the logical way our brains work. I would say perhaps it's the illogical way, the terribly limited way our brains look at the, the universe. We, we stuck it all into a t teeny tiny little box. And, you know, maybe what the aliens, whatever they are, are saying, hey, you guys got to crawl out of the box and start thinking about things in a different way. And so when... Greg says, you know, maybe they're trying to lead us to something. Maybe that's what they're trying to lead us to, um, which starts to sound, Greg, let me throw this to you, because some people will criticize this line of thought as being almost quasi-religious, that you've, you guys have drifted off the scientific reservation, and you're basically talking about religion now. You're no different than born-again Christians or something. Um, this idea that there's an, an intelligence that's trying to lead us somewhere, and they might not be from Zeta Reticuli, they might actually be from here. Do you think maybe we're drifting too far into faith-based ufology, Greg? Is that a concern that the ETH people often level at, at folks like us? Well, first off, I, uh, while over the past few minutes I've been thinking it'd be interesting on the Paracast to have an ETHer and somebody who's not an ETHer have a debate. And you will I be the co-host on that episode. Okay. Okay, so um, you volunteered. Yeah. Well, if you've been in the UFO field for a while, and um, probably Gene knows this, a lot of the stuff people talk about starts to sound sort of religious because you start running into that. You start running into government stuff. You start running into psychology. You start running into spirituality. And I don't think there's any reason to shy away from that because we're dealing with people's 
with people, you know, with their psychology, with their belief systems, with whatever their wants and needs and and uh, cultural background is. And if that includes, you know, their spiritual beliefs, so be it. The other thing I was thinking when you were, when you were talking about, um, we were talking about all the, uh, uh, whatever these entities are, wherever they come from, and they didn't see any, you know, they don't care who, you know, what people's position is, you know, that, that's a spiritual idea too, that, you know, there's no difference between like Karl Rove and a, and a farmer from Namibia or something. They're both, you know, well, they're, they're in trouble now if they think that, I'll tell you, but <laughs> political viewpoint here. Yeah. No more. Yeah. Well, they are in trouble. Excuse they think me. That. Let me just zip it here. Sorry about that. That's all right. They are in trouble if they think that, I suppose. But the thing is, what we've learned about the UFO subject and about witnesses is that anybody can witness a UFO. It's not limited to an economic or social or even by country or nationality or anything. And so I think that if there is an an intelligence, which I think there is behind the behind the um, paranormal behind the UFO subject it's um, so democratic it's it's almost out of our realm of, of belief of how democratic it is and I'm not saying that to be you know political or that I'm a Democrat or anything like that but uh, just to use the word that if they want to contact somebody everybody is fair game yeah small D democratic not big D yes exactly yeah okay so Charles Ford says we're property so say the crypto terrestrials seeded us nurtured us, whatever, whatever, and they're leading us on a path, which is why flying saucers are here to make us think. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I think so. I think they're, they're, I think we're also helping ourselves by buying into um, that it's something worth taking a look at. Does that make sense? Works for me, Nick. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, just to go back to, to Paul's point about, you know, when, about drifting towards a religion and, you know, are we any different to a preacher? I, I actually think we are. I think we're the exact opposite because a preacher, whatever his or her religion is, their role basically is to uphold that belief system, whereas we, I think, are questioning belief systems. We're not denying the existence of something, but we're not hammering home, you know, the idea that it's this or it's that. And I think that's the important point, that a lot of people in ufology, you know, I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else, because I'm certainly not, but I, I do hope that I have an open mind rather than a mind that has always already reached a conclusion and that is determined to uphold it come high water or whatever. Um, you know, I think, I think this is the important thing, that ufology, there is an argument for saying that certain aspects of ufology do spill over into religion in terms of the approach, but it, it is very much based around upholding belief systems, etc. And I think, I think there are people in ufology who do that, consciously or otherwise, but I would hope that more people would come around to the idea eventually that we can look at the idea as I do believe that there's a genuine phenomenon without having to, you know, hammer home the point that it's that it's explanation A, B, or C, etc. Yeah, isn't I that a problem, use... though? Isn't that a problem, though, that we want the Reader's Digest explanation? We want yeah. the few pithy paragraphs that simply summarize the entire thing. And when you say, you know what, we're only at the beginning of the research, not the end. We don't know what's going on yet. We only have a faint glimmer of hope to figure it yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a valid point. There are People want answers. And for, in ufology, people want reassurance also that, you know, oh, the aliens are here to help us. A lot of people want that, you know, as 
somebody mentioned earlier, the idea of ufology almost kind of unconsciously replacing old-time religion. You know, I, I, I understand that for some people in their lives they need meaning. You know, I kind, you know, I don't know if there's a life after death. Uh, I don't dwell on it. I don't think about it that much. But there are people who do. My view is, I've got 70 or 80 years, hopefully. What happens afterwards happens or it doesn't. I'm not going to dwell on it. But when you begin to dwell on a subject and you want it to kind of have a meaning in your life, to me, you, as I said earlier, you've kind of lost all direction. And people might think that sounds sort of cold-hearted, but it isn't. It's just that, you know, we dwell on things because as human beings, we understand mortality and death. You know, your pet dog, all he wants is to be stroked, fed, patted, taken for a walk, he loves his life. He doesn't have that concept that one day it's all going to be over. So he doesn't worry about higher entities coming down to save him. We do because we know one day it will be over. And I think ufology is like a comfort zone for people who are not necessarily in tune with mainstream religion but equally because we're human beings they want something and for them it's ufology i wouldn't use and you're quite right nick the term religion which i uh, i don't abort the term i just abort the practice the formalized sort of codification of spiritual beliefs i would i would use the term spiritualistic uh, mm-hmm. or mystical there's a within all faiths there's a, a mystical trend that often gets squashed by the mainstream churches and you know it's funny your blog you and greg and uh, 85 other people now is, is, is known as um, as ufo your gang has increased is known as ufo mystic and i think that I don't know why Craig or whomever came up with that term, but I think that touches in using the religious faith-based thing. It touches into the fact that what you guys do when you write, um, if you view ufology as in some sense a religion, but also in some sense, uh, say, call it a spiritual or quest or whatever, you guys are more in the spiritual quest end of it, where you're asking questions, you're out there, you're mystics. It happens to be in the UFO field as opposed to religion, but whatever, or faith. And that exists in almost every inquiry of humans looking into something that we don't understand, certainly with spirituality or faith. There are mystics, William James, all bunch, Henry Allen was one. Um, Jesus himself, one would say, was, was very mystical. And then there's the people who come along and insist on taking uh, that mysticism, that wonder, that questioning, and taking everything special out of it you know, like sticking a pin in it, draining the lifeblood out of it, and then leaving a cold, dark, gray husk. And, oh, okay, that's what we've got because we can control that. No, you're right. I know. <laughs> so, see, we don't have to go anymore. Everybody's right. We're all perfect, and we have to say nothing more because that's it. I think the problem is in any of these things, any of these pursuits, if you want to get down to brass tacks, I suppose, and I've written about this and so has Nick, is fundamentalist thinking, the belief-based thinking, which stops you looking at other things. What could be more boring than to be stuck in one type of thought process, one belief system, and then sit there and defend it against all people who you know once in a while have a good point? I think that's boring, and it's also um, it's, it's, uh, cowardly. To me, to to so I, I will I distinguish skeptics um, in the UFO field and any other field by by two terms: skeptic, which is somebody that doesn't believe anything without proper uh, evidence to back it up, and a fundamentalist skeptic who won't believe anything no matter how much evidence you show them. 
Yeah, I think one of the most important things, too, and I swear this is the last thing I'll read from Mac's book, <laughs> but I want people to, why I'm doing this is I want them to hear what he wrote and understand that there are very few people writing in the UFO field or the paranormal field in general that also had a facility with language that Mac had. So many UFO books, no matter how much information they might impart, are so deadly, drearily dull in terms of their language. You two guys are, you know, wonderful exceptions. Uh, oh, thank you. Yes, quite so. But even beyond what Greg would write or what Nick would write, I mean, Mac just had a facility with language that was special. And uh, I think it bled through into his science fiction writing, too, the, unique. And that's what we'll miss. And here's, here's his final comment in the book. He, he leaves the crypto-terrestrials behind, and he, he goes back to talking about us. And I think a lot of what Mac's thinking on, on all of this was that we see in the UFO phenomenon a mirror of ourselves. Perhaps it says as much about us as, as, as it says about whatever they are. So here's what he wrote. He said, although I harbor serious reservations about humanity's ability to make the evolutionary cut, I'm not without hope. I sense great things in the making. I enjoy experiencing this dire, ever-accelerating point in our species' history. Our potential as genuine cosmic citizens challenges the imagination and stretches conceptual boundaries to dizzy extremes. I'm willing to embrace transcendence or endure extinction. I must perpetually concede either possibility, no matter how dramatically different, regardless of how exciting or dismal. I walk a fine existential edge, fearing and cherishing, enlivened by a vertiginous sense of astonishment and horror. And I would say that there's no better way of looking at the UFO phenomenon than those. He wasn't specifically writing about ufology, but the UFO phenomenon, those two paragraphs, existential, you know, the idea of you're looking at it in both horror, but also fascination a mystery, all of that stuff. Um, I think he re it's so sad because he really was somebody who was capable of exciting people's imagination again. I would, I would call him, tell me if you think I'm wrong, guys, the Carl Sagan of ufology mm -hmm. in the sense that he could popularize it and also at the same time, um, so make it accessible, but also at the same time inspire people to think. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking about the crypto terrestrials by mac townies our co-host paul kimball nicholas redfern greg bishop are here to help guys your thoughts about what paul just read and said you want to go greg <laughs> all right 
the one phrase besides the uh, what Paul just read, the one phrase that sticks with me and which is kind of distills everything that I've been looking at since I started uh, really seriously looking at the at the paranormal was a phrase he came up with somewhere in the middle of the book called recreational paranoia, which is a wonderful phrase, um, which mean, to me it means don't be afraid. You can be afraid, but don't be afraid to think differently or look at something new or feel threatened by something, whether on a personal level or an intellectual level, when you're looking for answers. And that's, you know, in, in, in a nutshell, that's the, um, I think that's a proper attitude, a brave attitude, a courageous attitude. You know, have fun with it. Yeah, you're going to, it's like being on a carnival ride. Things are going to come at you. You're going to go over, you know, go over hills. You're going to fall off things. But if you trust yourself and you trust your own thinking process and not other people's, I think you'll find maybe not the answer to the UFO question, but some answers about yourself. And I think uh, I talked about that with Mac quite a lot, and um, he, he agreed with me on it. it the, the search for answers is more like a journey and more like a uh, um, putting yourself through a different school, not the school that you go to classes and pay for and all that. Well, I guess you do pay for books and conferences and all that. But it's a personal journey, and there's there's a lot of rewards there if you don't allow yourself to be stuck anywhere. The journey is its own reward, Nick. Exactly. Yeah, what yeah. Greg said. <laughs> oh, this is so easy for us, folks. No, um, no, I actually, you know, Greg makes some good points, and I think I think part of the search of the truth about the UFO mystery is the fact that we are almost put on a quest to find the truth, and that also kind of touches upon what you know Paul talks about religion. You know, the idea of of finding something and, and coming to a conclusion or a belief system. I, I think that you know, there's great. Uh, uh, Greg made some good valid points based on, you know, Max writings and I think if nothing else, the fact the sad fact that this has to be Max's final work, I think, you know, he's left us with a body of work where we can, you know, talk on a two hour radio show and barely scratch the surface. You know, most books or whatever, you can wrap them up in an hour or so of conversation. Mac offered so many different theories of the, the things we've discussed tonight that you just don't get within mainstream ufology because mainstream ufology is so compact, so compacted into, you know, one or two theories and ideas and, and frameworks. And, um, you know, the like Paul said, with Mac's writing, you know, he was so descriptive and so you know brilliant in his writing style that he he was just able to present me 100 pages you know something that some people would take a lifetime to write and you know particularly those last paragraphs as well you know that it was sort of bordering on all you could really say about the phenomenon that's you know hadn't been said before so. do you think that maybe in putting together this book he knew innately that he didn't have much time left I always well, kind of think that people do know when their time has come, and I think just going back to something that maybe has nothing to do with it. The day before my birthday, back in 1988, my father calls me, and we would talk frequently, but maybe only for a few minutes, and then he spent more time trying to express his thoughts the next day he died. So you kind of wondered, when Mac was putting this together, maybe the message in Ailey says, you know, Mac... You're going to be leaving soon. You've got to get this down, Pat, now. Um, I, you know, that that's sort of a romantic notion. Um, 
And I think not only because I know that Mac and I, and I'm sure maybe Greg and, and Nick too, but I, I had talked to Mac. We were working on a science fiction screenplay based on uh, the play that we had co-written, which hopefully will be going in production this year. So Mac's final work might not be the crypto terrestrials. I'm kind of hoping that it's this film that we'll do. And then he has a lot of, you know, short stories and stuff that I think will be a rich vein for screenwriters and other people to, to take up in the years to come. But he was talking at least to me about collaborating on other projects and the crypto terrestrials was a, was a stop, an important stop on his own road, his own journey. And Greg hit it exactly right. Mac was all about, and this is why, you know, um, he and I got along so well and we all get along so well. You know, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It sounds trite and cliched, but it's true. And he, I don't think he thought he was anywhere near the end of his journey. And so that's, to me, that's the tragedy. And I think you can see that in the book, Gene, as you pointed out. He had more that I think if he had lived, the book would have taken longer, but there were many other things that he would have put in it as well. So yeah, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think he saw the end coming at all. In 10 minutes or less, maybe define where we're going or where we could go from here. And by the way, neighbors, we are going to do more shows about Mac Tony's The Crypto Terrestrials. That doesn't end here either. Okay, seeing where we are now, we're living in a sea of ETH. How do we help people think about other possibilities? We always call on Greg first, so go ahead. <laughs> As Nick I and think Paul the, think. <laughs> yeah. I think the way to do it is doing exactly what what we're doing right now, is to just popularize the idea in the best way we know how, by or, or using our vehicle or our, you know, whatever our tool is. Paul's is film, Nick and I write, and you do the you do the podcast. I do one too. But that's the best way to do it. I mean I mean it's not my style to shove things down people's throats. I present what I think and then wait for people to react. I, I don't want to carry a flag. Unfortunately, the people that do carry a flag get a lot more people listening to them. But that's not the way I do it. That's not the way any anybody here does it. So I think just popularizing his ideas, bringing them up. I've, I've actually brought up, I've played a clip of Mac at uh, talks I've given. And, you know, two or three people in the audience go, oh, hey, and they come up to me afterwards and talk about it. And, you know, and I think that's how it works. You get a few people talking about it, and you would hope at some point that turns into more of a, a flood and then a torrent. I don't know if that'll happen with Max Max book. I would hope that it does, but I, I have said before that if there's going to be a change in the UFO phenomenon, the way we look at it, it's not going to come from the UFO people. It's going to come from a, a field of study outside of ufology, whatever that is. And I think at that point, a lot of the things that Mac wrote about will have a lot more relevance. And maybe that's why I said that the, the book will be heralded, you know, um, uh, may, I hope not long, but after its time. Okay. Yeah, I, th I, I agree with what Greg said. What I would add to that is that, you know, one of the problems with not necessarily having people believe what Mac Mac's theory. I don't think Mac would want that. I think Mac wants, wanted the UFO community to be open-minded to different scenarios. But the big problem we face in getting the UFO community to be open-minded to something other than the ETH is the problem that, you know, ufology is very much like a closed group of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people who read UFO magazine and attend conferences, but in terms of the people who do the research, the writing, and who you might call prime movers, they are rigidly stuck, not just in the ETH, but it's kind of like this safe mode 
where, I mean, I'll give you a good example. When I wrote Body Snatchers, a couple of people, well-known people within ufology, said words to the effect of, wow, you know, you wrote that book, are you worried about getting thrown off the lecture circuit? In other words, they were worried, had they done something similar, they wouldn't be invited to the next conference at this city or that city. And that's what you're facing. You have the ufological community that doesn't want to rock the boat because they have, like, their own turf within that field. He's the abduction guy, he's the implants guy, she's whatever. You know, and that's the problem. And they're frightened to think outside of the box because they, they're fearful of what their peers and colleagues are going to say. They're frightened of getting thrown off the lecture circuit or not getting, you know, late-night phone calls from this research or that one or being in on somebody's little secret, you know, their big grand plans for ufology or whatever. And that's what, it, that's what we're up against. We're up against not just trying to expose the phenomenon. We're up against a subject and people within the subject who have a comfort zone which you know is relative to other people as well that they don't really want to get out of and that's the problem how we get them out of it to look at other ideas without them worrying about the first thing that they're not going to get booked book to speak at john smith's conference next year or whatever john smith's putting on a conference wow <laughs> yeah and hey, we've got a book that right wait i need an extra speaker i could use a few. well <laughs> yeah. yeah whether it's john smith you know Bill, whatever, who knows, you know, just the idea of don't worry about your position in ufology, just just go where your mind goes. Oh, man, Bill didn't invite me either. That's terrible. <laughs> um, well, when I did my review of, of the book, which you can read on the Paracast forums, I, I said, look, Mac wasn't writing for ufology. Uh, I know, believe me, folks can believe me or not, but anyone who knew Mac knew that he had very little use for quote, quote, ufology, and it comes through in his book. Mac was aiming at, at, at a bigger target, and this is why I think he had no idea he was going to die or anything. Um, I think this was just the beginning for him of what was going to be a very long exploration of what the UFO phenomenon meant, and not an exploration that would, uh, not a conversation that he was interested really in having with ufology, um, which I think he believed was terminally ill. I think it was a conversation he wanted to have with people outside ufology, that he wanted to, to, to engage, to talk to people, to learn from people that weren't stuck in this, you know, La Brea tar pit of intellectual rigidity. <laughs> oh, I like that phrase. Can I just copyright that? Yeah, we can use that. And, you know, when I when I wrote the review, this is horrible. I'm about to quote from myself now. But to me, this is what the crypto terrestrials is. And um, Uncle Stan will not like this, but whatever. Uh, I wrote, people like Stan have done more to undermine the cause of the extraterrestrial hypothesis within the broader public than 100 Seth Showstacks, not necessarily because they're wrong, but because they are so convinced that everyone else is wrong. Mac rejected, as Greg Nick and I do, their intellectual rigidity, as well as their lack of any true sense of wonder or appreciation for the mystery of it all. And now I use one final biblical thing, and Nick used rock and roll, but I wrote, if Friedman et al. have spent the last few decades hunkered down in the ufological equivalent of an intellectual Jericho, then Mac is the guy standing at the walls with the trumpet, and the crypto-terrestrials is the blast that should bring the whole decrepit edifice of certainty crumbling down. And I think that's what this book is. I think it's a clear, and Nick compared it to the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, and somewhere Mac's spinning in his proverbial wherever he is. <laughs> because, although you did mention Morrissey and the Smiths in your forward, Nick, which was nice. But 
so many people have been so certain for so long about what the UFO phenomenon represents that to uh, to paraphrase the Joker from Tim Burton's Batman, what this thing needs is an enema, and what the crypto terrestrials is is the enema. Uh, it is that trumpet blast that that says, you know, we can't be certain about anything, which doesn't mean we're chickens with our heads cut off running around just willy-nilly saying this, that, and the other thing. Let's focus in. Let's ask questions again. Maybe those questions will eventually lead us to answers. But we have to admit that after 60 years, we don't have those answers yet. And we're really no closer than we were in 1948. And I think that's the point of what he was doing with the crypto terrestrials, encouraging people to think again and to look for answers again. And I think this encourages us to do more episodes about the crypto terrestrials and what it means to the study of UFOs and other mysteries. Greg Bishop, where do we find more of the things that you do? Well, uh, mainly in one place, UFO Mystic, where I write semi-regularly. Uh, semi, um, also, you can go listen to my podcast at radiomisterioso.com. It's M-I-S-T-E-R-O-S-O, spelled, I guess, the Hispanic way. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, books, Project Beta, Weird California, and Wake Up Down There, which is a compendium of the magazine that um, I published from about 1991 to about 2000. Nick Redfern, where do we find more of the things that you do? Um, well, coincidentally, I also write for uh, Euphemistic. Uh, people can find more at my website, nickredfern.com. I've got a lot of different blogs on varying subjects that I'm interested in, and um, click on the website, and you know you can find all the info there. So. And Paul, where do we find your stuff? The Brass Rail in downtown Toronto, which <laughs> if anybody's ever been to Toronto, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but every town has a club like that. No, uh, redstarfilms.blogspot.com for some of my paranormal stuff. Go to I have a YouTube sort of page, Red Star Films, if you sort of type into a YouTube search engine, Mac Tony's and UFO, some of the videos that I did of Mac will come up. Uh, the most important of which I would I would suggest is I gave him the final word in my best evidence documentary and I think everybody should listen to that uh, it's really only him talking for about a minute but it sums up pretty much everything that Mac believed and thought about the UFO phenomenon which is why I put him at the end of the film so um, so look for that Paul Kimball, Nicholas Redfern, Greg Bishop thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast thanks for having us standard of paranormal radio is a copyrighted presentation of making the impossible incorporated tune in next week for a new adventure in the powercast <laughs> <laughs>